Good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor. I want to especially welcome those of you who are joining with us uh, for the first time uh, today. We are in the middle of, actually, we're at the end of a series. Uh, we're finishing up a series today. Um, if you um, uh, would like to catch up on this series, you can go to our uh, website at southsuburban.com and click on sermons, and you can uh, kind of see where we've been going as we have been looking over the past couple of weeks at healthy uh, living. Uh, most of us have probably been doing the uh, New Year's resolution thing. Most of you are probably done doing the New Year's resolution thing. And uh, so we've been kind of delving a little bit more deeply into what it means to, to make a New Year's resolution and to think about those sorts of things. And today we'll be finishing that up. I'm excited about next week. Uh, our uh, Mission Puerto Rico team will be uh, leading the service next week, uh, giving their testimony, sharing uh, with you and, uh, uh, and us all of the work that God has done and, and the transformation that God brought, uh, not only for those folks with whom they worked, but uh, uh, also in, in their lives as well. Um, if you see somebody walking around with a white t-shirt that has Spanish written on it, that's one of our Mission Puerto Rico team members, so be sure to thank them. Uh, for their willingness to serve. Uh, about 30 people went from all over Colorado, Wyoming, and some other surrounding states. Uh, 19 of those came from South Suburban Church. Uh, so we kind of, you know, were the, we were the bullies, I guess, weren't we? So anyway, but one of the interesting things, this morning I received an email from another person who uh, uh, went on the mission trip who does not uh, attend this church. She attends another church, and she just said, I just want to thank, I, I want to tell you, how much I appreciate it working with South Sub folks, and thank you for supporting this mission trip. So I want to publicly say thank you for you guys, for the witness. You know, uh, I forgot to tell the mission team uh, my rules whenever a, a church mission trip, you know, because you always worry, particularly if it's a youth mission trip, you know, you're like, if they act up or if they get in trouble. So I always tell them, look, if you act up or you get in trouble and somebody says, where do you go to church? tell them First Baptist. So, but it uh, looks like this week, we, we, everybody could say South Suburban, so South Sub Church, so we're grateful for that. Um, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different this morning. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to, as we conclude this series, I'm going to be looking at a couple of scripture references. They're in your uh, notes in your bulletin. There's five of them, actually, and um, uh, one of the things I forgot to do was to tell the uh, tech team which lines I wanted underlined. So when they go up on the screens, they're not going to have underlines, but I think you can figure it out. So uh, you, you'll just have to pay closer attention uh, to the message. But as we, as we wind this down on this last uh, Sunday, this last sermon of the series, um, we're looking <clears throat> at those one things that you and many others like us throughout the nation have been doing um, in order to, to make their lives different. And, you know... Silver bullets are some of those things that all of us are looking for to make life better. we just got to find that silver bullet that will fix everything in our life. Silver bullets actually have a long and, and mythical history. Uh, the first time that we ever hear of silver weapons uh, in literature goes back to the year 64 B.C. when a guy named Horace, who was a Roman, wrote a series of poems and lyrics about his observations in areas of love and friendship and religion and politics and war. Horace is sort of the 64 B.C. version of The View. 
has absolutely no background or clue about anything, but has an opinion on everything. I'm going to get emails about that when I know. Well, uh, Horace actually writes a story about the Oracle of Delphi, uh, where the uh, non-existent pagan god Apollo uh, gave some advice to a guy named Philip of Macedonia. Now, you, isn't he a good-looking fella? He's just I'm all, just all beauty. Philip of Macedonia is actually Alexander the Great's father. Everybody knows Alexander the Great. He conquered most of the known world. And this is his dad. And Philip of Macedonia went to the Oracle of Delphi in Greece and, and asked how he could be victorious. And the Oracle told him that if he only fought with silver spears, he would always be victorious. So it didn't matter how much he trained his soldiers. didn't matter about the tactics that he used. The silver bullet... The one thing that he needed to do to ensure that he always won his battles was to use silver spears. Now, from the popularity of Horace's stories, silver weapons were viewed as a metaphor for divine victory. As a matter of fact, by the 17th century, uh, the silver spear changes to the silver bullet, and it becomes the one item that is able to defeat a werewolf. Now, all of you know about werewolves. Some of you might be married to a werewolf. I don't know. But it, not until the 19th century that probably some of us in the room, maybe not all of us, know the most famous silver bullets are those that were carried by the Lone Ranger. First appearing in 1933 on television, remember the Lone Ranger, the consummate white-hatted good guy who, whenever he encountered a bad guy, you would use his silver bullets to what? shoot the gun out of the bad guy's hands. He never killed anybody. He just shoot, shot the guns out of the bad guy's hands. Today in our popular culture, a silver bullet is the one thing, is the one thing that if you do, it will change your life. That's how we kind of understand that these days. Matter of fact, self-help gurus will tell you that the one thing that you need to do so that you can have a happy life is to prioritize positive thoughts every day. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, there is some research that suggests that the one thing that will impact your marriage and will give you a happy marriage is if you tell your spouse, I love you, at least once a day. Now, all of us know that raising children is hard. In a recent article by a researcher named Kristen Ivey, she writes, she's actually a parent consultant. I know, I need this job. People pay her for her to tell them how to raise their children. We're missing the boat, church. We've got to figure out a way to make money. She is brilliant because she is a very successful, I hope no one in this room is contracted with her as their, your parent consultant. But she actually wrote a, an article not too long ago, and she says that uh, there is one thing that every parent needs to do in order to have a good, well-adjusted, healthy child. Are you ready for the one thing? They must have a healthy diet, exercise, play time, study time, downtime. They need to learn a practical skill. They need more rigorous classes. Wait a minute. I thought you said this was going to be one thing. Well, the thing is that you and I always know that there really isn't one thing. Well, the Bible weighs in on this as well. 
The Bible gives us the one thing we need. As a matter of fact, not to be outdone, the Bible gives us at least five one things. Now, if you go home and you go onto a Bible search engine or Google or anything, and you Google one thing in the Bible, something like 14 or 16 different verses will pop up um, that talk about the, the word, the phrase, one thing. And about five of them deal with the one thing, the one thing that we need to be paying attention to. And what I've done with us this morning is I've listed the five references in your notes where we're going to be looking at the one things that the Bible lifts up as things that will change your life. First of all, as you are discerning whether or not this New Year's resolution you made was really worth it, we come to the book of Psalms. And I'm going to be reading each of these. There's five of them, so you can go back this week, pick one a day, and make that your devotion each day. Think about that. Ask God to speak to you, to teach you throughout your day as you seek to apply that one thing. From Psalm 27, verse 4, David's writing here, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Now, when David spoke these words in the psalm, <coughs> there weren't any synagogues yet. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even a temple yet. The temple is not built. Uh, matter of fact, David's son Solomon is the one that builds the temple. David had already distinguished himself. This is King David in the Old Testament. He's already distinguished himself having conquered the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, before David got there, was inhabited by a tribe called the Jebusites, and the, the word Jerusalem, which was the name of the city, actually means, are you ready for this? The city of peace. It, somebody forgot to tell Jerusalem this over the last 2,000 years. And in this city of peace, David finally conquers them. And as David conquers this city, the first thing that he does is he builds himself a grand palace. It is a palace uh, that everything about it, its architecture, how it's laid out, where his throne is. The intention is, is that when you walk into this palace, there is no question in your mind who's running the place. David is running the place. It is filled with all of the comforts that at the time David lived would have been unknown to anybody else but David himself. Now, there was a place for worship. It was the tabernacle. Now, this is the same tabernacle. The word tabernacle literally means tent. And this is the same tent that the Hebrews used when they fled out of bondage out of Egypt and wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. And this tent became the central worship space for the ancient Jews. This is where God resided. It was the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day that, that hovered over the tabernacle. It was in this tabernacle that the Ark of the Covenant was, this big box upon which the Ten Commandments were written, the angel's wings on top of the box that formed the seat that the Jews literally believed God sat on. And in this city of David, that's what we call Jerusalem uh, after David conquers it, in this city of David, the tabernacle was brought into the city and it was uh, reset up on the highest hill in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it's the same hill 
upon which the temple will be built when Solomon becomes king. And here's what's interesting about this, is David, who lives in this grand palace, this palace that is beyond uh, our comprehension, he sits down and he pens these words about what it means and what it is he wants, the one thing in life that will change his life. The one thing that David wants is to be with God. Not in heaven, as we Christians might understand it. You know, that's the kind of uh, the phrases and verbiage we use. I can't wait to be with God. Some of you are looking forward to it. If the bus is going today, you're not interested in going, but you know eventually. But when David is talking about this, he's not talking about it as some distant event that you might read, for example, in Psalm 23, when we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But he's talking about dwelling in the house of the Lord here in his city, that he'll leave his palace and go and dwell in the house of the Lord. Why? Because it's in this house where David believes he will be able to inquire of God. He'll be able to ask God the questions. He'll be able to get the the answers to life's troubles and meanings. It's a place that he can be in communion, in relationship with God. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we understand this because we also talk about knowing the mind of God, seeing God, understanding who God really is through the person of Jesus Christ. Is that our desire as followers of God through Christ? To know God so intimately that nothing else matters. To know God so intimately that we're willing to give up all comforts, all signs of our prestige, all of the things that we think the world will respect us through. Are we willing to give all of those things up so that we can know the mind of God? Will it bring us happiness? Will it bring us joy? To be so perfectly aligned with God's will in our lives that nothing else matters. We as Christians proclaim this, we believe it, it is a part of who we are. That the very first step, the one thing that is present in our life is that we must have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite dead theologians I don't think dead theologian society. That's what we got to come up with. One of my favorite dead theologians is a guy named Thomas Aquinas. He lived in the 13th century. Matter of fact, his thinking greatly influenced some of the founders of the Christian church movement of which this congregation is a part of. Aquinas' favorite quote is this, I fear the person of a single book. I fear the person of a single book. Now, we hear that quote sometimes in the modern world, but Uh, In the modern world, when we hear it, it actually has a completely different meaning than how Thomas uh, meant it. Today, when people say it, what they mean is, is that they fear the person who has only read one book. That is, the person who is so unfamiliar with other ideas and teachings that they are content to live in their own ignorance, consoled by the fact that they already know all there is to know. Y'all know people like that, don't you? But that's not how Aquinas meant it. What Aquinas meant when he said it 
was that he feared a person who had given themselves to the intense study of one subject to the point that they are an expert in that particular field. That's who he feared. <clears throat> now, we, we know what this means. I mean, if any of you have ever been or will ever have to go to see a heart surgeon, it'd be perfectly fine with you if the heart surgeon was pretty well schooled in issues of law or, or issues of theology. For that matter, they could know everything there is to know about muscle cars. But what's important is that they know what? Everything there is to know about the heart. Not just any heart, your heart or the heart of your loved one. That nothing will surprise them when they crack that chest open and go and mess with that muscle. This is what David desires. To know everything that is humanly possible to know about God. An endeavor that he recognizes that this effort to know everything there is to know about God will literally take the rest of his life. That he'll have to spend time in study. That he'll have to be in close proximity to the will, to the voice, to the teachings of God. It is from this knowledge, David believes, that everything else in his life will flow. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, used the same phrase. He said that he wanted to know the one book, that one book being the Bible. Because he said that from this, what he might learn from this would be what would help him grow in knowledge of God and God's ways. Brothers and sisters, if you want to find meaning in life, like David, it begins with a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that relationship grows as this, this book, the Holy Scriptures, become a part of your own spiritual development. There's another one thing in the Bible. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Several weeks ago, you may remember that we looked at this same story, if this line sounds familiar. This comes from the story of when the rich young ruler confronted Jesus about the one thing he needed. We read it from Matthew's version. But the reason I lifted up Mark's version is because Mark actually uses the phrase, one thing. There was one thing that prevented the rich young man from seeing the gift that was offered to him by Christ, and that was his wealth. Now listen, wealth is not necessarily a barrier in your relationship with God. But it is a God, with a little g, that constantly taunts us and tells us that our happiness is a result of our work, of our talents, of our abilities, of our positions of influence. And that is those things that give us security. It's those things that give us safety. That it's those things that give us a sense of meaning. But Jesus 
peers into the heart of this rich young man and reminds him through this audacious demand to sell everything. You see, the lesson here is that it is God who is your provider. Now, the one thing that I've discovered in my own life is that God, through his compassion and mercy, has a tendency to take out of our lives those things that get in the way of our relationship with him. So you be mindful of that. That can be painful sometimes. Anything that is hindering your sanctification, that's just a big word that means making you and me in the image of Christ. Anything that gets in the way of God molding our lives into the image of Christ, God will take it out of our lives. Now, I don't know what that might be for you. I'm, I'm, I thought about giving you a whole list of those things that get in the way of me, but then I decided, no, I'm not going to tell you that. But it could be things that you're very familiar with. For the young man in the Gospel of Mark, it was his wealth. But for some of you, it may be control in your life. I don't know if anybody suffers from control issues. It could be your dreams or your goals. It could be your job. It could be those things in your life that you want. You know, I've discovered that when my goals are my goals, they hardly ever come to pass. That's something that I've experienced. Or if they do, I suddenly realize that those goals that were my goals don't really bring me any joy, don't really bring me any happiness. There's no fulfillment in it. Can I suggest something that's bold? Can I suggest something for you to consider this week? Nothing will bring you true and lasting joy in your life that isn't somehow tied to God's vision and plan for your life. Stop asking God for what you want. How about that? And start asking God for the strength and courage to receive what it is He wants in your life. You won't be losing. You'll be winning. And yes, it might be surrender, but it is a surrender that will bring you victory. Because you're surrendering not to the world, you're surrendering not to yourself, but you are surrendering to the one who is the only one in the entire universe that wants the best for you and knows how best to use you to advance the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel for his glory. I find joy in my children. That's, people say, what do you love most of all in this life? Well, I, I guess I should say Sean and my wife. But then next, my children. I mean, Sean and I spend a lot of time uh, pouring our, our, our lives, our thoughts, our minds into our children. As a matter of fact, we think that one of our responsibilities as parents is to teach our children the faith. I'm glad we have South Sub kids, but, or South Sub youth, but it's not their job to teach our children the faith. It's our job to teach our children. They're there to help us, walk alongside of us, but it's our responsibility. And so one of the ways that we've used to teach our children, for example, how to pray is we've taught them to memorize prayers. 
So they have memorized the Lord's Prayer from Scripture. They have memorized prayers from the church's great history and tradition. And I'll have to admit that there have been times as we have watched our children grow up that we've discussed, are we making a mistake here? Are we just teaching them words that don't really mean anything? Is anything taking root in their hearts and their minds? Until not too long ago, one evening at evening prayers, uh, as we were going through our prayers, our daughter said, Mommy, Daddy, can I pray my own prayer? And we said, sure. And as she began to pray, one of the things that we saw was that she wasn't asking for the next toy that she had seen in a magazine or tele- television. She wasn't asking for her, these folks in the neighborhood or to, to like her. She was offering thanksgiving. She was thanking God and praising God. Thank you, God, for a house to live in. Thank you, God, for food to eat. Thank you, God, for mommy. Thank you, God, for daddy. <laughs> you see... It was in that moment that I experienced joy with my children, a joy that is infectious and comes up every day as I think about that. Why? Because that joy is tied to God's will for our children. When I see our children being formed and raised as God wants them formed and raised, I find joy in my ministry with you, but not necessarily in attendance and offerings, although they're good. But I'll tell you what really gives me joy is this past week when I looked on social media and I saw folks from this congregation gathering together with folks in Puerto Rico who have experienced the horrific experiences of of hurricanes and earthquakes and our folks with heads bowed, hands clasped, praying. And that was when joy came into my life. That's the joy of what it means to serve in the life of the church. I find joy in the blessings in our finances. I know all of us do that, but not in how you would think. Rather in the excitement that when I know God provides us financial resources, that just gives us an exciting opportunity to share, to share in God's mission, to share in the vision of this congregation, to share in the ministries of missionaries and children with Compassion International. That's what brings us joy, the joy of generosity. Jesus continue, or the, 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 the one things continue in the Gospel of Luke when one of the people that Jesus has healed says in defending this, but one, oh no, this is Jesus. I'll get it within a second. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now you all know this story. This is a story between Mary and Martha. Mary's one thing is this familiar story that all of us know where Jesus has come to Mary and Martha's house, and and Martha is busily preparing the meal for all of the guests. But where's Mary? She's at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings. Now, we look down on folks in our life today who drink too much, eat too much, whole host of tendencies that people do too much. But the one thing that we don't generally look down on people is people who work hard. As a matter of fact, we celebrated. We lulled them with honor, awards, pay increases, not paying any attention to the toll that it takes on their health, their marriages, their children. And Martha here is looking for kudos from Jesus. And what she probably perceived from Jesus' remarks were this. 
Mary chose to listen to my teachings. You did not. Mary chose well. You didn't. And those words would sting. Those words would hurt. But brothers and sisters, it's about priorities. What priorities do you hold in your own spiritual edification? One of the things that I see as a tremendous strength of this congregation is the high regard that we have for active discipleship, teaching, training, making disciples, our small groups, our interest groups, our elders, our deacons, our choir. As a matter of fact, even our governing board meetings include an emphasis on this one thing. That is, we are to listen to God. Now, this text is closely related to the psalm text that we began the message with this morning. For that matter, all of these things that we have been talking about, these one things, all boil down to an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I I know, preacher, you're just preaching at me. Well, I am a preacher. That's what preachers do. I know, pastor, but you don't understand how difficult it is to deal with all of the conflict in our world, the sickness in my life or in my family, the bad things to my friends. Man, it is hard to fight against the fears, the uncertainty, the doubts of what it means to live in this life. At John chapter 9, verse 25, the person that Jesus healed is dealing with those same kinds of issues. And when he's being grilled by the religious leaders about how he was healed, he says, whether Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. One thing that is hard in my own Christian life is every time I have to defend my faith to other believers. I expect it when I deal with non-believers. But brothers and sisters who are in the church, we ought to be old hats at this. We ought to be okay with this. Recognizing God's power in our life should be a mainstay in our faith practices. I don't know if any of you saw this, but several years ago there was a story about a church in Texas. And uh, there was a big plot of empty ground next to the church. And so these developers, who were apparently not Christians, bought the plot of ground next to the church. And on it, they built a bar and gentleman's club. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Well, the church was so angry that they began to pray that God would miraculously and decisively get rid of that bar and club. Sometime after that, a tornado came through Texas, obliterated the club and bar, lightning hit it, and caught it on fire. And the developers, no lie, sued the church. And so the developers and the church go to court. And after both sides give their case of why the church was to blame and the church why they weren't to blame, the judge summarizes it before he gives his judgment. Let me get this straight. A bunch of non-believing folks are suing a church because they contend that they prayed to a God that they don't believe in that destroyed their bar. And a church is making the case that their prayers and God had nothing to do with it. It takes a second, doesn't it? You see, you and I 
have to see the evidence of God's work in our lives. But this takes discipline. You have to train yourselves to reflect on it each day. If at all possible, let me encourage you, do this in the morning and at the evening. When you get up in the morning and your morning prayers, you ask God to show you how he's going to act in your life that day. Ask him to use you for his will and his glory today. And then at the end of the day, in your evening prayers, right before you go to bed, reflect on the events of that day and look for how God answered your prayers that morning. Be confident that everything in your life, God is going to bring good out of it. This is biblical. This isn't me. This is the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you haven't memorized it, commit it to memory. And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the final one thing, from Philippians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Here's your final one thing. Forget the past. And look forward. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't learn from the past, but don't let it rob you of your joy. The confidence that you are called to have in God's call on your life. Now, I'm going to admit something. This is hard for me. I struggle with this every day. When bad things have happened in our life, it is really difficult to expect good things to happen. You expect the bad things to happen over and over and over again. If you are the survivor of a divorce, it is incredibly hard to fall fully in love again unless you're willing to risk being hurt again. Unless you're willing to risk betrayal again. Unless you do that, you'll never fully experience the joy of love and trust again. But, but you don't understand, Pastor, what if I get hurt again? I know. Yep. But God will carry you through just like he carried you through before. When you fall off your horse, what do you do? You get back up on it. Listen, Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away both our sins of the past and our sins of the future. He didn't die on the cross so that you have forgiveness right now and From here on out, you're on your own. That's not how this works. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ fully covered your past mistakes and has the power to fully cover any future mistakes. Listen, God's got this. Move forward. Not in the knowledge that you have it all together, but in the confidence that God is sovereign. Tell yourself do not be afraid. This is hard. If you, have to do, if, if you have to look in a mirror and point at yourself and say to yourself, stop being afraid, then do it. You've got to conquer that sin of failure. God's already called you. God has already redeemed you. God will sustain you. Now, I preach that not because I got it perfect, I just preach that because that's what the book says. So here we are, you and me, at the beginning of a new year.
When everyone is trying to do that one thing, that silver bullet, that will change our lives. Go ahead and diet. Go ahead and exercise every day. Eat healthy. Get that new job if it's in God's will to do it. All of those are fine, but remember this. If you remember only one thing, remember this. It is not about the one thing. It's about the one person, Jesus Christ. And out of that one person, everything, everything else will fall into place. Believe. Believe. 